first time she's played in front of the church, and that was awesome. I appreciate her doing that. I, I've told you before, however God's gifted you, he's gifted you to serve the local church and to edify in the local church, and I appreciate her doing that, and all of those, especially those that week after week, they're in our orchestra, and, and I, I appreciate the, uh, the availability that people make themselves to use their gifts and their talents for the Lord's glory, and certainly appreciate Una doing that tonight. You're a scary bunch to stand in front of sometimes for the first time, so I'm, I'm glad she made it through it. That was good, and, and a great song. That's one of my, uh, when it comes to invitation-style hymns, that's probably one of my very favorite. I love that song, I Surrender All. Let's go to Revelation chapter 19 tonight. Revelation chapter 19, and I've entitled the sermon this evening, A Marriage Made in Heaven. Um, we've married off two daughters so far. We still have two children not married, and I was uh, reading an article in that came out by, it wasn't in Forbes magazine, it was actually on their website, and I saw a link to it, so I looked it up a couple months ago, on uh, Forbes.com last June, just a couple months ago, they said that depending on where you live in the United States, the average American wedding uh, costs somewhere between $16,000 and $46,000. I was like, well, we were below average. Uh, man, um, can you imagine that? $16,000 and $46,000. I paid, I paid less than that for my first house. Our, our first house didn't cost $46,000. Good grief. Uh, actually, it was a mobile home. Our first house didn't cost $16,000. My goodness. They're all the same. At the end of the day, weddings are pretty much the same, aren't they? The bride is decked out, and she's usually beautiful, and she's got this gorgeous white dress on. The groom, no matter what they wear, they all look the same. Deer in the headlights. They're just standing down front trying not to get run over by what's coming. Um, it's a, Weddings are just amazing things. I was reminded this week in, in preparing for tonight, I was reminded this week, and some of you may remember the runaway bride story back in 2005. That was a while back. Remember that? Uh, that was a wild little tale. Uh, I wrote the details down so I wouldn't mess it up. The, the girl's name was Jennifer Wilbanks. She was supposed to be married on April uh, in April of 2005. To, she was supposed to be married on the 30th of April. She disappeared on the 26th from Duluth, Georgia, just south of us here. And um, three days later on the 29th, and there was a nationwide search for her, the local authorities, the FBI, looking for this, uh, for this Jennifer Wilbanks. And she was gone. On the 29th of April, she contacted her fiancé back in Georgia and said that she had been kidnapped by a Hispanic man and a white woman, that she'd been kidnapped and assaulted and taken to Albuquerque. And that's where she was, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, Well, they started looking for these kidnappers. And the more they investigated the story, the more they found out that um, there wasn't a Hispanic man and a white woman. There was no kidnapping. There was no assault. Uh, she got cold feet, and she just left, like Georgia to New Mexico left. They charged her with filing a false police report. They, fi- they charged her actually with, with a few different things. I'm glad most weddings don't turn out like that. Most of them come off with some success, uh, and I'm glad for it, and I'm, I'm glad to participate in weddings and to see young people getting married. Uh, when they do, when, when they come down the aisle, Everyone is anticipating a glorious wedding and and marriage, and no one is walking down the aisle 
looking for divorce. They're just, they're just coming down the aisle. They're looking uh, to spend the rest of their life with this man or this woman that they have fallen in love with. What they're hoping for is a marriage made in heaven. Well, there is a marriage that's made in heaven. And we're going to look at that tonight in Revelation chapter number 19. This is one of the more exciting times in the scripture in Revelation chapter 19. We've had these dark, horror-filled plagues that have been detailed for us. And I'm amazed that God gives us so much detail about the end times. But he does in these previous chapters. Well, now we're going to go from the earth that has just been trashed by God's judgment. We're shifting back up to a scene in heaven that gives us some hope and gives us joy. Everything everything about weddings, uh, except the preparation for them usually, everything about weddings are joyous. When people come together, it's a joyous occasion. And so this is not just any wedding, of course. It's what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're looking at it in the first few verses of chapter number 19. And this is one of the future events that is for you the New Testament church. This is not for Israel. This is not even for those who are saved during the tribulation period and are martyred and already in heaven when this takes place. This is for the New Testament church. Those others may be invited as wedding guests, but the supper is celebrating you and me. We are the bride of Christ. It's a celebration of the marriage of the lamb to his bride. This is, as I said, one of the future events for the local church. There's three of them. One one preacher put it like this. He said, in the rapture, we will be caught up. In the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be cleaned up. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll be cheered up. So that's what you have to look forward to. Caught up, cleaned up, cheered up. So tonight, let's talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, this marriage that's made in heaven. Revelation chapter 9 Verse number 1, and we'll read down through verse 10. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints." And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have, tes- that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus 
is the spirit of prophecy. Well, here's the marriage supper of the Lamb, all things being ready, and everyone's been invited, and now they've been assembled, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is about to take place. So let's look at this tonight and three or four components that make up these verses, verses 1 through 10. The first thing I'd like you to see is there is this exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the exaltation of the Savior, and that's found in the first six verses that everyone's attention is pointed to. Weddings are often today, they're followed by celebrations. The time before the wedding is usually stressful, isn't it? Mothers of brides, can you answer that? Uh, It's stressful. There's decorations going on. There's plans being made. There's schedules and reservations, all of these things being done. There's some fun in the preparation, but it's not a celebration. The celebration today comes after the wedding. But in heaven, things are different. Here, the celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, takes place before the wedding and again after the wedding. The cause of this rejoicing is found in verse number 7. There's rejoicing and celebrating going on. Why is that? Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. God has been building this lamb for 2,000, or this bride rather, for 2,000 years. He's been calling the bride to himself. The marriage of the Son of God, it is a big deal in heaven. It's a big deal. There's all kinds of celebration. We've seen big weddings here, but nothing's going to compare to the marriage of the lamb. Not with the bride, not with all that he had to go through to get his bride. Some of you may have courted your wife for a long time. I look at Jacob. You look at Jacob in the Old Testament. Boy, he was smitten with Rachel, wasn't he? So he talked to Rachel's dad and said, I'll work for you for seven years. And so he did. Labored out in the fields, out in the flocks for seven years, worked for this woman. Come the bre- You know, our, our veils today are somewhat different than they are in Middle Eastern culture. Uh, she was veiled at the wedding and um, presented it to him, and they got married, and they woke up after their wedding night. That wasn't the woman he worked for that he was married off to. What a terrible way to wake up. I mean, there were no lights allowed in that house that night, nothing. He wakes up, and he'd married Rachel's older sister. He went back and he went back and just gave it to Laban. What in the world are you doing to me? I, I worked seven years. And then Laban makes him work seven more years for Rachel. Now, I didn't go through a courtship of anything like that. Uh, I don't know what you went through, but I didn't go through anything like that. But when we consider what Jesus Christ went through to get his bride, well, you can imagine why there's this celebration like this on this scale that we're going to look at tonight in heaven. This is a big deal. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Their voices are being lifted in praise here in these six verses. And in fact, they center around four hallelujahs. In verse number one, you have the hallelujah of God's salvation. The hallelujah of God's salvation. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation. And everything that flows from that, comes off of that salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Those in heaven are praising the Lord for all that he has done for them. The cross, the blood, the resurrection, the rapture, the, 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 the uh, uh, deliverance from wrath, all of the things that God has done for them in salvation, they're saying to him, hallelujah. 
And they're loud about it. These words that are described, a great voice of much people. You all, When our church was singing this morning, we were singing Victory in Jesus. I just stopped and listened. It's always easy for me to tell when a song is being sung that you like. Apparently, our church is for Victory in Jesus, number 473, because it sounded great in here this morning. Well, this group up in heaven, there's a massive crowd, and all of them are lifting their voices, and they're praising the Lord expressively. First of all, for the salvation that he provided for him. John Phillips tells this story about a, a man in Wales. This man's name was Billy Bray. Billy Bray had been saved, and he was an old-time shouter when it came to praising. Some of you have been around folks like that. They're just they're shouters. Um, Billy Bray was that way. Sometimes people around him, Christians around him, got a little annoyed at how vocal he was. He was all the time saying amen and hallelujah. He based that off of this passage here, that in heaven, the church is, is worshiping the Lord, saying amen and hallelujah. And so Billy Bray... He would say amen or hallelujah all the time in church, sometimes out of church when he was just having a little bit of a fit to himself. He would be praising the Lord vocally and expressively. Some people came down on him. Finally, Billy said this. He said, I can't help it. God has been so good to me. With every step I take, I remember his goodness and I remember his glory. I put my right foot down. It says hallelujah. I put my left foot down. It says amen. And so that's just kind of how he went through life. Here they are in heaven, and they are praising the Lord, first of all, for God's salvation. We should start that now. We we should praise the Lord now for the great salvation, Paul called it, the great salvation that you have been given and I've been given in Christ. It didn't come cheap. came free, but didn't come cheap. We ought to praise the Lord for it. And then that's in verse 1. Verses 2 and 3, there's the hallelujah of God's sentence. We talked about this a little bit this morning. It's a hard thing to imagine people rejoicing in heaven over the tragic events that are going to come to this earth. But that's what's happened. The hallelujah of God's sentencing or his sentence. Heaven's residents are praising the Lord. And look at the reason there in verses 2 and 3. You read as well as I do. They're praising the Lord for the judgment on the great whore, Babylon, the world. They are praising him for executing perfect judgment on a rebellious world. They now know that his judgments are true and righteous altogether. I said this morning, when you and I get to heaven, our perspective on this is going to be completely different. Our perspective on God's justice will be different. I think our perspective on our suffering is going to be very different when we get to heaven. We're going to see things the way God sees them without the filter of a sin. We still have a sinful flesh in us. All of that has been removed. And so we'll see things as God sees them. I I think it's important that we should remember that God has already won the war against evil. When Jesus said it is finished, he was talking about Payment for sin and the battle against the battle is won. That's why Paul later is going to say he's going to say we fight from victory. There's a lot of difference when we say we fight for victory or we fight from victory. You and I are going through this world and we live our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit from a platform of victory. It's already been established, and as a result of that. His people come out on top of all the suffering that that we'll go through in this life. And in heaven, we're praising him 
not only for his salvation, but also for his sentence upon the rebellious earth. And then in verses 4 and 5, they're praising God for the hallelujah of his sovereignty. His sovereignty. I am so thankful God is in control. I watch things in our world, and uh, I'm already sick of politics coming up in next year. I'm already tired of them. I am so glad that God is in control. In verses 4 and 5, we're introduced again to these 4 and 20 elders. These 4 and 20 elders are mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. We met them first in chapter 4 and verse number 10, and this is the last mention of them in this book in chapter 19 and verse 4. They're also mentioned in chapter 5 and verse 8, chapter 5 and verse 14, chapter 7 and verse 11, and chapter 11 and verse 16. Six times, this is the last one, but you know what's interesting? You can go go read them, it's excellent. Every time they're talked about the book of Revelation, they're doing the exact same thing. Every time. Six for six. You know what it is? They're on their face worshiping the Lamb. Every time they're mentioned. We said before that these, and it ought to interest you, because we said before these 24 elders represent the New Testament church. That's us. So when you see the 4 and 20 elders in verse number 4, where it says they fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying amen and hallelujah. When you read that, that's you. This is what you're doing. In Revelation chapter 19, when it comes to fruition, this is you and me. Why do they praise the Lord so much? It goes back to what I said just a moment ago. It's because they are finally free to offer perfect worship and praise. I'm thankful that we can come together today and we can, we can do what God commands us to do there in John chapter 4. We can worship the Lord in spirit and in truth today. I'm thankful that we get to worship the Lord. We worship him in our singing. We worship him in our giving. We worship him in the word. But in heaven, when you read people falling down on their face and they're worshiping the Lord and they're praising God, keep this in mind. They are offering for the first time perfect praise. They worship him all of the time. All the fleshly limitations are removed. All the inhibitions. Uh, Some of you would not say amen in a church service if Paul showed up and preached. You would not say amen. Those inhibitions are going to be removed when you get to heaven. All of heaven, when it talks about the praise and the worship of the Lamb in heaven, all of it points to a vocal, expressive, loud group of people. It says here that there are multitudes like the voice of many waters. And they're praising the Lord. Here they're praising him for their sovereignty. They know. They see now. uh, They see everything the way God sees it. We were in, uh, let's see, where were we the other day? I was eating lunch with a bunch of police officers in Morristown the other day. And we were eating at that, you know, that little restaurant across from East High School in Morristown. Long time ago it was Dairy Queen. And when Dairy Queen left, they just can't keep somebody in there. Well, now there's another, there's another uh, Asian restaurant in there, and I was looking at this, this thing on the wall, and I thought, that is a beautiful picture. It's an outdoor scene, and I thought, man, that is, that is quite the painting. And I don't, I don't know, it was probably, I, I'm going to probably mess this up. If you go in there, you're going to say, well, he overshot that. But it looked to me like it was six feet long and probably three or four feet tall. It may not have been four feet tall, maybe three. 
But that, that, that thing was six feet wide, I bet, and probably close to that tall. And I thought, that is a beautiful picture. And then I saw a little sign on it. That thing's a cross stitch. And I looked at that again, and I told those SWAT guys I was with, I was like, that's not a painting. And I, they must have think, what, what do we care? I said, that's a cross stitch. <laughs> this is the SWAT team. Would you keep that in mind? Oh, and then one of the guys said, and thankfully, one of the older guys on the team said, boy, that took some work. And I'm like, yeah, it did, didn't it? We're, and we're talking about that. And it was a beautiful, it, it was just a beautiful thing. And some of you know where I'm going with this. The back of that thing is a mess. It's just a mess. But the front of it makes perfect sense, and the detail is all there, and you see everything that that lady wanted. It was, it was cross-stitched by one of the ladies that works in that in that restaurant and it shows everything that she wanted you to see now the back of it's a mess but the front of it is exact when we get to heaven we get to look at the front of the cross stitch and we'll see God's sovereign hand directing our steps the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way that's going to be us one day we're going to be offering the hallelujah of God's sovereignty. And then in verse 6, the last hallelujah, the hallelujah of God's supremacy. The hallelujah of God's supremacy. This verse, uh, verse number 6, says, uh, it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That last phrase, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, what puts him at the top of everything? Reigneth over what? They didn't specify. He reigns. Just he reigns, period. It's his supremacy. You have in verse number four those two heavenly words, hallelujah and amen. You have those two words. That word amen, you know that. It means let it be so or this is true. That's why when someone is preaching or teaching, you, you might hear someone say amen. What they're saying is that's true. That, that is true. Or let that be so. We ought to go out and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody will say amen. That, let that be so. We ought to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're saying in heaven amen. They're also saying this word hallelujah. That hallelujah, that is a Hebrew word in your Greek New Testament. That's interesting. The word hallelujah, is a, it's a Hebrew word. It literally means praise the Lord. You know that little song that you sang when you were a kid? Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. All you were doing was translating at the end of that into English from Hebrew. You were Hebrew scholars. You didn't even know it. You were translating from Hebrew to English. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. That's what these four and twenty elders are singing. Why are they praising? Why are they saying, let it be so? Why are they saying, hallelujah? Because of that last phrase, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The apostate church has been forever put down. The system of the world called Babylon has been completely destroyed. Her economy is in shambles. Now they are saying, the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's what it says at the end of verse 6. 
The two requests, the two petitions in the model prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they're about to be fulfilled. And so he's saying, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. One by one, these enemies are falling. We're watching them fall through the tribulation period. We're seeing them come uh, under the, the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible in the Old Testament talks about the enemies being put under his feet. And we're seeing that happen in this book. And so the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. These first six verses that they open up to build up toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. To celebrate this wedding between Jesus and his bride. They're building this up and they're doing it by exalting the Savior. That's the first thing in the first part of this chapter. And then in verses 7 and 8, there's not just the exaltation of the Savior. There's the excitement of the supper. Here's this marriage literally made in heaven. And it's going to be the culmination of some very important events that have been going on for thousands of years. Verses 7 and 8 talk about that. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. You can hear them speaking past tense. It says that uh, the wife hath made herself ready. To her was granted. These are all things that have been going on. This marriage supper is the culmination of some things. First, in verse 7, the first part of that phrase, there's this excitement because of a completed plan. A completed plan for the marriage supper of the Lamb is come. Those those two words, is come, that little phrase, that that is a note to let us know that what has been anticipated is now coming to pass. This was expected. This marriage supper, it was expected. For Jesus to have a bride drawn out from the church, it was expected. The marriage of the Lamb is come. This long-anticipated event has finally arrived. God's plan for the ages is about to be completed. All the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. When Adam fell, Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter number 3. God has been working ever since then on a plan to restore his relationship and fellowship with mankind. He even talked about that plan, the first hint of it, in Genesis chapter 3. The act that made this possible, that would get man, Adam and Eve, when they fell, completely out of fellowship. You remember that story. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They're, uh, they're def- that garden is defended, an angel with a flaming sword. They're not coming back. It wasn't so much the garden is they're not coming back until something changes to a relationship and a fellowship with God like they used to enjoy. In that garden, they got to walk with God in the cool of the evening, it said. They fellowshiped with God perfectly. There was, no, uh, there was no hindrance in their fellowship at all. All of that was cut off when they chose to sin. But immediately, God began working this plan to restore fellowship and relationship with mankind. That's what was going on all through the Old Testament, through tabernacle and temple sacrifices. It was being pictured. And it was all pointing to Calvary when Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind. All of this is going on to restore what was lost in the garden. And now we are. 
We're brought back into perfect fellowship. Our sin has been removed. We're no no longer under uh, under condemnation. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. All of those things have been addressed. Now we fellowship with him. Do you fellowship with him every day? Anytime you want, you can fellowship with God. But though we can do those things, and though we are as saved as we will ever be, and though we are his sons and daughters and that will never change, we're not in his physical presence yet. But on this day, in Revelation chapter 19, that all changes. And this is the moment when the church, collectively, millions of people comprise the bride of Christ, and they are presented to the bridegroom. Whenever you refer to Jesus as the bridegroom, you ought to capitalize that B. The Bible does. He's, he's the bridegroom. And it will be one of, if not the most celebrated moments in human history. It's the culmination. Calvary made way for Jesus to collect his bride. And now we have the Lamb of God taking his bride to himself. And I, I think this is important. And this flies in the way of our Western culture uh, weddings but it's not all about the bride. Those of you that are single men and you're, you're looking one day to be married, I got news for you. That day is not about you. you. You're there. You've got purpose, but it's not about you. In our Western civilization, it is about that bride. She's going to get, when she goes to get married, she's going to get this room and it's going to be full of mirrors and she's going to have somebody come in there and do her hair and you're going to be told, make sure your hair is cut for Friday. That's what you're going to get. But somebody's going to come in, and there, there's going to be all this primping and processing going on. It is all about that bride. Nobody's going to stand when you walk in with a preacher. When I walk in with a groom over from that door right here, and we come down here and stand, not one time since we've done that has the congregation stood. They could absolutely care less. But when she walks in that back door, we're going to stand up right now. It is all about her, but not on this day. On this day, it's all about the bridegroom. The bride is adorned. She certainly is. But her glory is not going to compare to the glory of the bridegroom. It's going to be absolutely amazing. That day is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we ought to make it all about Jesus Christ now. Because it will be for eternity. In our church, in our home, in our personal life, make it about Jesus now. There is this... There's this excitement about this this supper that's going on, the marriage made in heaven. It's the groom and not not the bride. It's the Lord Jesus that is the center of all attention. And here's the real kicker. It's going to be you and I that are giving him the most attention. Because then we will realize all he did to save us and how great of a savior he is. So the next thing in verse number 7 and 8 then, it's also the excitement of a completed presentation. A completed presentation. We just talked about this Wednesday night, so I'm going to kind of go through this quickly. But you know that the Middle Eastern, or they're called Oriental weddings, especially in ancient times, are very different than ours. Very different. Whether you were poor or rich, they looked very different than the Western civilization wedding. They had typical Middle Eastern weddings in that day had three stages. We just talked about this with Samson the other night, right, on Wednesday. So let's go through them quickly. First, there's the betrothal stage. We know a lot about this because of Joseph and Mary. They were betrothed, not yet uh, 
uh, not yet considered married, maybe, uh, and we tend to, and if we're not careful, we'll draw a, an engagement parallel. But our engagement is nothing like the oriental betrothal, because if you were betrothed, you were in effect already husband and wife. You just did not live under the same roof, and you did not share the marital bed. The, betrothally, the, the betrothal was a legally binding contract, and to get out of that, you had to either die or get a divorce. So there's this betrothal stage. They were considered married by their society. And it was a, it was a very significant thing. In our culture, we might, be, we might get engaged and we might break it off. There was a guy that we went to school with her freshman year, my sophomore year. There was a guy we went to school with. He was engaged three times in one school year. From September to May, three different girls. Should I have pointed that out? He was engaged three times to three different girls. Our idea of engagement is nothing like the oriental idea of betrothal. Uh, There's another difference there in that the marriages were often arranged by the parents. Those betrothal periods, the teens weren't in here when we were talking about this the other night. They all just voted no right now. Uh, But during that betrothal period, that was all arranged by mom and dad's. Dowry prices were negotiated by parents, not the groom, not the bride. So there's the betrothal stage. Right now, the bride of Christ is in this betrothal period. We have been set aside by the father to marry his son. We are betrothed to Jesus right now. We're just waiting for the next stage. And the next stage is the presentation stage. When the time of the wedding was come, the groom's father would tell his son, Get your groomsmen together and go get her. So they would show up unannounced with trumpets. They'd be shouting. It was a great big celebration. You can see this bunch of boys just going down, and you're like, oh, man, here it goes. They're going to get her. And they would show up at his future father-in-law's house, and they would come to take the bride, and they would get the bride and bring her back to the house that he's been working on. In that betrothal period, he has been building a place, usually attached to his father's home. He's been building a place that he would live with his wife. And now he's come to get her, and this was a time of great celebration and joy. And a lot of times, they would do this after dark. So they'd come through the city or the town or the village's streets, and they'd have these torches, and they'd have these trumpets, and a big raucous going on. You're like, what in the world's going on? Well, a bride was being captured away. It was a big deal. Today we are betrothed and we are just waiting on the bridegroom to come and get us. And then finally there is the festival stage. The festival stage. The celebration time. After the ceremony, the newlyweds, their families, their friends began this wedding feast. It was a time for celebration. They celebrated some before, then they had the wedding and now they're celebrating more. We're going to talk about that wedding feast more in a minute. So you had the excitement of a completed plan. God has been working on this since Genesis chapter 3. You have the excitement on a completed presentation. The bride is now being presented to her bridegroom. And then the last thing is the excitement of completed preparation. Again in verses 7 and 8, it talks about this preparation. It says there that his wife hath made herself ready. Culturally, the brides would make their own wedding dress. They would make their own wedding garment, making them as elaborate or as simple as they chose. 
that wedding garment, that wedding bride, uh, that bridal dress, or whatever you'd like to call it, it really consisted of two pieces of clothing, an inner garment and outer garment. The inner garment called the tunic, the outer garment called the toga. She would make both of those and she prepared herself and what she showed up in in that day, it was her wedding garment. And she'd made those. In this betrothal stage, you and I are are to be preparing ourselves for the coming wedding. Verse number 8 says, The bride of Christ is clothed with white linen, and that linen is the righteousness of the saints. There are three types of righteousness. As you and I are preparing ourselves for the coming of the bridegroom, there are three types of righteousness in the scriptures. The first one is personal righteousness, and that will do you absolutely no good. That's the righteousness that we work up ourselves. And we know what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said in chapter 64 and verse 6. We know what those those garments are worth. That, That righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. Despicable rags. There's no, there's no value. You can't even, you can't even use those. You know, when my t-shirts wear out, sometimes we just, my, I do like my dad did. I keep them for rags out in my garage. You can't even use the rags of my righteousness for a rag out in the garage. It's just no good. Personal righteousness. We're not going to be dressed like that before the Lord. We've got to have something else. Well, there's personal righteousness. It's no good. There's also provided righteousness. That's what you need initially. You need provided righteousness. We are given this righteousness by Jesus Christ when he saves us. Do you remember our Wednesday night series here uh, several months ago? We did a Wednesday night Bible study on the doctrine of imputation. And we talked about imputed righteousness. It's righteousness that has been given to us. That's not our own. It belongs to another. That's what's pictured here. Imputed righteousness is like that inner garment that tunic that she made for herself. You didn't see that when she was at the wedding ceremony. You didn't see the inner garment. That was covered by her outer, her outer garment. That, that uh, provided righteousness or imputed righteousness, it's the righteousness that God has given to your heart. He has made you new. Remember 2 Corinthians says, old things passed away, all things are made new. That's what God did on the inside of you. Spiritually, it's been made new. You have a new inner garment, and it's the righteousness of Christ. And then there is the third righteousness, practical righteousness. That's the outer garment. That is what others see. Practical righteousness is what I do and say and how I respond because of what has taken place on the inside. Does that make sense? What God did on the inside of my heart is to be fleshed out. Paul said, work out your own righteousness. Work it out. Get it out. What God did on the inside, let that be visible on the outside. Where the provided righteousness is the inner righteousness God gives us at salvation, the practical righteousness is that outer appearance that makes us look and talk and live differently than the world. We practice the righteousness of God. Of Christ. So the way we prepare ourselves for the wedding, we're the bride. The way we prepare ourselves in this betrothal period while we're waiting for him is first of all, put on that inner righteousness of Christ. Be saved. Secondly, put on 
the outer righteousness and practice what you are, uh, practice what you're claiming to be. Someone said, as Christians, we ought to be who we are. Who are we? We are child, we're a child of the king, but we are made righteous in Christ. So be who you are. Live on the outside to the degree that God has saved you on the inside. Let that be, let that be fleshed out. Christ's bride is preparing herself. So you have first, in the first verse, you have the exaltation of the Savior in those first few verses. And they're lifting him up in verses 1 through 6. Then you have the excitement of the supper. And boy, it's going to be great. They've been preparing for this. She's been preparing. He's been preparing. This is all going great. And then in verses 9 and 10, finally you have the expectation of the saints. The expectation of the saints. This... This wedding doesn't end with just the couple simply moving in together. This wedding has a celebration like nothing the universe has ever seen. I I want you to let your imagination just run wild on this wedding celebration. Has anybody in here ever not been to a wedding yet in your life? Anybody not been to a wedding? Okay, so we're all on the same page. Weddings are a place of rejoicing. They're, They're festive. Uh, they're, they're celebratory. Well, this wedding is not going to, it's not going to disappoint. You ever gone to a wedding? If, if, you, if a wedding time is picked at the wrong time, if you pick a wedding to be conducted at the wrong time of the day, you're going to go away from that wedding hungry. I don't know what it is. I, you ever go to a wedding and, and, and it's right at the wrong time, you're not ready to eat, and you're like, well, I hope they have something good for dinner. And then you get there, and they're serving fruit, and that's their reception. All they're having is like fruit. And you're like, well, that didn't work out at all. I was looking more for something a little more substantive, you know. Uh, we're looking, my brother-in-law used to say all the time, he said, we want some sustenance, you know. We want some meat. We want some potatoes next to that meat. Um, this wedding's not going to disappoint. You're not going to go away from this wedding celebration disappointed in the festivities. I don't know what the marriage supper itself will be, but you won't be disappointed with it. Everybody has their thing. Well, I'm hoping it has this. I'm hoping that. I can guarantee you, you will not go away from the marriage supper disappointed with what is being served. And and let me say this. Something is going to be served. We're going to talk about it. Something is going to be served because the Bible says it's Jesus Christ himself serving the bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So something's going to be served. And if it's Jesus serving it, that's going to be good. Let's, Let's look at this. The first, the first thing is the guests at the wedding. There will be guests at the heavenly wedding. And, and as I said a moment ago, I think the guests at the wedding are the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. The bride of Christ is not made up of everyone that is in heaven. The bride of Christ is made up of the New Testament church. The New Testament church is not Old Testament Israel. And the New Testament church is not the, uh, the, the tribulation saints. The New Testament church is a group of Jews and Gentiles who have been saved before the, before the rapture and they, or since the beginning of the church and before the rapture. It's that group of people. They're, they're in that window from the birth of the church to the rapture. Other than that, they're either Old Testament saints or they're tribulation saints. The bride is the church. The guests at the wedding supper, I believe, will be millions of them. Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. The Bible says the number of tribulation saints is beyond counting. 
There's going to be a lot of wedding guests. We don't want that if we're paying for that wedding, do we? We kind of limit the number of guests that come to the wedding. God's, God's going to have a great number of wedding guests there. Not just the guests at the wedding supper, but the glory of it. The glory of the wedding supper. After the wedding, there was always a celebration. How long that celebration lasted and how good the food was depended on the wealth of the bridegroom's family. That's why with Samson, we have an idea that Samson's family was pretty well off because when he was getting married, he got to that wedding feast. It went for seven days. They had a number of people there and they fed and gave them to drink for seven days, however many people were there. This This one is going to be something. Jesus is going to present his bride with a celebration that's going to last for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. It's going to be an incredible celebration. After the wedding, we return with him to the earth and he puts down his enemies. And for 1,000 years, Jesus reigns with his bride. The church is is told in the New Testament again and again. The church is. The church is told. You will reign with me. The Old Testament saints are not told that. The tribulation saints are not told that. It's the bride of Christ. So there's this glory of the wedding supper. Imagine what it will be if, uh, imagine what it will be if God is footing the bill for this celebration and this wedding. In 1981, there was the wedding of Prince Charles and uh, Lady Diana Spencer. Their wedding, it's it's, it's estimated that their wedding cost about $48 million. Today, that would equal $156 million. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine the $48 million, let alone $156 million. In addition to that, there were hundreds of millions of people that watched that wedding around the globe. How sad it is that the same world watched the decay and then the final death of that marriage as well. million were spent on a wedding for two people. What we're talking about today is a royal wedding that will last for eternity. That relationship will never decay. And the celebration of it is going to be absolutely incredible. I think the lavishness at the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be so, it's going to be something because The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns everything there is to own. His wealth is not going to be hindered at all by this. The music, the food, the joy, the beauty, all of those things. There's no reason to have an expense because God owns everything. And there's going to be music at that wedding. The Bible tells us that. That there's singing there. There's the guests coming to this wedding. There's the glory at the wedding supper. There's the groom at the wedding supper. A typical oriental feast, the groom mingled with the guests, and they would make sure that every need was being met. After all, it was his family that was hosting this meal. They were hosting this wedding celebration that's going on for days and days on end. The Bible says that when we are in the presence of the Lord Jesus as his bride, that he is going to see to it that our joy is finally and perfectly full. Listen to the words of Luke 12, verse 37. These are Jesus' words. He said, in that day, he would gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Jesus 
serving the bride. That is beyond my mind's grasp. You kind of feel like Peter when Jesus came to him to wash his feet. You say, wait a minute. But at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bridegroom will come and serve his bride, making sure her joy is full. I think this is a, and I'm not a, I'm not really a romantic, but I think this is a fantastic story of what's to come between a bride and a groom. The Bible is, is telling us that this day is going to be unparalleled. It's the culmination of thousands of years. In fact, it's the culmination of nearly all of human history since Genesis chapter 3. I think that's going to be a celebrated day, don't you? I think that'll be a big deal. I read this one article. I'm going to share it with you. And this is what the guy, this is, this is we'll, or we'll close with this tonight. One man said, imagine the society page in the New Jerusalem Chronicle reporting on the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride. And here's the article he wrote. Yesterday, the Lamb of God took his bride unto himself in a service presided over by the Heavenly Father. The ceremony, which has been planned since before the foundation of the world, was incredible. The bride was dressed in a brilliant, gloriously white garment. She was absolutely spotless and without blemish. As beautiful as she was, though, her glory was nothing compared to that of the bridegroom. The Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God himself, was arrayed in all of his glory and was brighter than the collective brightness of all the stars he had created. The music, well, it was heavenly. Millions of angelic hosts lifted their voices together, praising the name of the Most High God, while cherubim and seraphim hovered overhead, crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. The bride herself sang at the ceremony, the title of her song being Amen, Alleluia. After the ceremony and the meal, the couple left for earth for a thousand-year honeymoon. When they return, it has been reported that they will spend eternity together in heaven. That's a great article. It's all true. It's not happened yet, but it's going to. It is, as we've, touched, we've discussed before, this is pre-written history. This is what's coming for the church. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I hope you're ready for that day. I hope you're anticipating that day. I hope you're looking forward to, in fact, to use Paul's words, I hope you're loving the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know of all the rewards that are listed that Christians can be rewarded at the judgment seat? There's one for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a preacher or a missionary or an evangelist to earn that crowd. That's one for all of us. Do you love the Lord's appearing? Consider today, consider how you're preparing during this betrothal period. You are, and I am, to me, making ourselves ready for that day. How do we do that? Well, the first thing is we need an inner garment of righteousness. We need that, that provided righteousness. The righteousness that we get when the Lord Jesus Christ saves us and forgives our sins and grants to us eternal life, and we get that provided righteousness. And then we also need that practical righteousness day by day, wherever you're living and working or learning, wherever you're at, you need to be living a practically righteous life. 
Let it be seen on the outside, church, what God has done for you on the inside. This is our betrothal stage. We are the bride anticipating at any time, anticipating the arrival of our bridegroom. We don't know, like in the oriental weddings, the the bridegroom didn't send a messenger ahead and say he was coming. He just showed up. Now, they could hear him coming. Probably for blocks and blocks, they could hear him coming with his group. It's going to be a little different, but there's going to be trumpet. There's going to be a trumpet when the bridegroom comes. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that. It also says there's going to be a shout. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's a marriage that's going to take place that will know no divorce ever. Be ready for that day. What are we to be doing in the meantime? We're to be preparing for the arrival of our bridegroom. With personal righteousness? No. That won't do you any good. You need provided imputed righteousness from Christ and then the practical righteousness where Paul said I'm going to surrender every day to God I'm going to die daily to him and let him have full control of my life and this is how I'm going to prepare for the arrival of my bridegroom I'm going to live my life every day thinking to myself well this may be the day he comes this could be the night he comes how do I want to be adorned when Jesus shows up unannounced what do I want my practical righteousness level to be do I want to be half in half out do I want to have one sleeve in the jacket but one sleeve kind of bare or do I want to as best I can be all dressed up in the righteousness that resembles the Lord Jesus Christ and be living for him 100% so that no matter when he comes I won't be caught ashamed that would be my challenge to you tonight with this, with this message. Be encouraged that we're heading to this wedding, but also be responsible. We've got preparation to make while we wait. Be saved. Be sanctified. Live for Christ. Live for Christ every day. That's good news in the middle of Revelation here, or toward the end of Revelation actually, but that's good news for us, especially after the previous chapters we've been studying. It's great to get a glimpse into heaven and to see And to see what's coming for the believer. Raptured will be caught up. Judgment seat cleaned up. But at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to be cheered up. And even even making sure that our joy is full will be served by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What an incredible thought. What an incredible thought. Well, I hope that's an encouragement to you tonight. That's a good passage of scripture. And uh, my intent is for you to leave here tonight more with more anticipation of Christ's return Um, and hopefully hopefully it'll be soon can we stand and be dismissed in prayer this evening God bless each one of you for coming fellowship together tonight maybe someone you didn't see this morning uh, but greet those around you let's let's be dismissed in prayer father I thank you for this day I thank you again for the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ it is it is comforting to us to know that you have all these things in your hands. Lord, your, your sovereignty and your supremacy over all things help us to sleep better at night. We don't have to worry about the, the things going on in this world. 
Uh, we don't get caught up with people who are arguing about the care of the planet. Lord, when we look in your word and we see what you have planned for this planet, it's devastating. But we sleep well because we know that we're not going to be here. We pray that while we're waiting for you to return, Jesus, that you would give us a heart for you, that we'd be fully surrendered to you, that we would seek to live our lives in such a way so that when people see our good works, they will glorify our Father that's in heaven. Help our lives to be testimonies of the grace that you have given to us. And while we're on our way to heaven, help us to do what we can to bring folks with us. Bless these families tonight that are here. I pray that you'd take them home safely. We do pray that you would be with those in our church. Uh, Lord, I pray for Brother Bill Childress tonight. He's got these tests tomorrow to find out what's going on. And I pray for he and Van to have your peace tonight. I pray for Virginia as she's looking at surgery on Tuesday, that you would guide the doctor's hands and accomplish in her heart repair Lord, what you would. I, I thank you that we can rest in you during these times and others in our church. Lord, I pray for some that are still recovering from surgery, for Donna Dupler and for uh, Rick Widener and others, for Nikki, and your healing hand is evident in them. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to hear our prayers as we pray according to your will and everything. We love you. Looking forward to seeing you one day face to face, and we pray that it's soon. In your son's name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a good, good week.